0: You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show who are on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and joining me in the co-host chair today, my good friend, Greg Benz. What's up, Greg? How are you? Good,
1: man. Good, good to reconnect, Jeff. I feel like, uh, Everyone's hiding in their bunker this year, and I'm like <laughs> ten times more excited every time I connect with a friend. <laughs>
0: it's so good. It's so good. I, I love the work you've been doing. It, for those that don't know, uh, Greg is primarily known for his Lumensia panel, which is an incredible luminance mask uh, luminosity masking panel that's that's awesome. You all need to check that out. If you if you haven't learned about that, you need to go check it out. And we'll we'll talk about that again at the end of the show. But he's also working on a plug-in for Photoshop to help with uh with exporting to the web. That is really fun. I'm working a little bit with him on it and it's looking good. I'm, I'm really excited for that plugin, Greg. It's, it's going to be
1: a great thing. Yeah, it's, it's going to be nice to have. I, I get so many questions about it. And I'm like, hey, hold on, because I'm just going to give you the answer. Hit a button.
0: <laughs> there you go. Hit a button. <laughs> exactly. And and part of what we're going to talk about today, I think it, it's loosely related to that. But really, the thing that inspired me the most to ask you to come on the show this week and, and uh, talk about color space is a blog post you just recently made. And this is... I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes. Everyone needs to go and check this out. Because you finally make the the issues or the configuration in Photoshop about related to color spaces, something that is possible to follow. I don't know why we insist as photographers or the photography community in general, they, we seem to try be trying to make this as hard to understand as possible. I, I don't know why that happens. But from the software engineers, and and maybe they have a, a more of an excuse because they're very, dealing with highly technical sorts of things, and they don't do as good a job probably of translating that so that it's it makes sense to a, your average photographer trying to use Photoshop. But it can be it's it's horribly convoluted and confusing. We have terrible names for things, and you finally have a really good video that walks a photographer through kind of the configuration in Photoshop for dealing with color spaces uh, that's, that's fabulous and everyone needs to go check that out. Uh, but what I wanted to do then was kind of build on that. And I wanted to provide a resource, a practical guide to color space workflows or pipeline for photographers because uh, I, I see this question come up constantly in our Facebook group. We have people always joining and and, in, and it seems like it comes up every few weeks to every few months of someone asking about color space and what color space should they be using for this or that, and decisions that they're making. So I wanted to, to Greg, you have done a ton of research into color space, more than, way more than than I've had. Uh, you read a bunch of books or something to get to get ready to really make sure you
1: understand color spaces, right? Uh, yeah, I last year I don't know why, but I go through about ten different pretty heady books, going through the details of it. I, I just got to a point where it was like the challenge that I wanted to solve, and I kind of felt like everything I read was a little bit of opinion, a little bit of conflicting ideas, and so I just decided to go to the source. and It was kind of painful, but I'm glad I did it, and I feel like it's helped me a lot to really kind of cut through the clutter on things. Perfect. Okay, so what I
0: want to do is leverage your knowledge now after paying that painful price to gain the knowledge. (laughs) I wanted to leverage it and try to provide a practical guide. Try to make it some uh, like dumb it down as much as we can, make it a very simple explanation as best we can about the color spaces and the three phases. And I, I think it's a really important distinction to make is that all of our workflows, the photography, everything we do in photography. When you get serious about it anyway, when, when you're beyond like, I want to make some, some nice pictures of my kids doing stuff, and you want to take it just a little bit past that, which most of the people listening to this show are there. They're at that point. Um, the three phases, you have capture, where you have to deal with some color space stuff. You have working or editing, and but working is a good term, especially when you're talking about like Photoshop configuration. And then there's output color spaces. So let's go through, I wanted to go through all three phases of those and define kind of what photographers should use and and make it a very practical guide for helping them make decisions on what color space they're going to use in each of those three phases. But first we have to spend just a tiny bit of time on what the color spaces are, the choices between them and, and what they are. So you have the standard kind of sRGB versus something called Adobe RGB and another one called Pro Photo RGB are the three main color spaces that are pertinent to photography. There's other ones and there's specializations you can get into, with, but we're not, we don't, want, I don't want to cover I don't want to make it complicated either. I want to make it as simple a discussion as possible. So Greg, with your. Studying, and, and I'm asking you to break down like you know complicated mathematics and stuff, <laughs> but but I want you to break it down as as simple as you can. Come up, and I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but come up with a simple explanation for sRGB versus Ad- Adobe RGB versus ProPhoto RGB.
1: Absolutely, and, and no one should ever have to understand the math, right? Like that's um. It's unfortunate some of the way these things were designed back in the 90s because there probably could be some better choices, but it's important to remember like none of this was built for us, right? Like we always think like, oh, Photoshop's made for photographers and color profiles are made for photographs, but it's it's not really true. I mean, Photoshop came out before digital cameras and ICC profiles are meant to help people with like industrial color problems and other things <laughs> right. like that. It's not, it's not like the only thing they're used for, right? So- that's part of the reason these things are so complicated. You know, if you just build it for us, you could make it a lot simpler and cleaner, but it has a little bit more overhead. But you, but you know, even with that baggage, you don't need to necessarily get into all the details. It it's not one of those things that you should have to think about too hard. Um, and I think before we even get to like those those three choices you laid out. I think it's helpful to step back for a moment and just talk about like what is a uh, color space. Sure, sure, let's do that. And and for and for some people, I think this is you know seems really intuitive. For other people, it's new. So bear with me if if you you know this is something you know. But um, like imagine you and I are just communicating, right? Uh-huh. And, and you know if you if you kind of abstract things, there's like the thoughts in my head. You know, there's the the things that I see, the things that I hear, just the stuff that I'm thinking about, right? And that that doesn't have language necessarily they're just ideas but then when i want to talk to you i need to talk to you in some kind of language you're going to understand maybe it's english maybe it's french you know whatever you and i can both speak and, and understand each other and some of those languages are more expressive than others sometimes there's a word that in one language it doesn't exist in another language right there's right. there's all these you know trade offs between the languages like if you could speak 10 languages you you, know, you wouldn't say they're all equal. You would have preferences for them. I have friends who are multilingual, and they'll speak to other people, and they might mix, you know, French and Spanish and English in the same sentence because <laughs> the words, you know, sometimes the word just more eloquent or better expresses an idea, and and that's really kind of the same idea in photography. Like when we go and capture an image, there's all this sensor data, and it doesn't have a color space. It's just electrical signals on a sensor. And actually, that's what a, a RAW file is. A RAW file does not have a color space. It has sensor readings. Like, if you were to, like, go dig into the RAW file, most cameras don't have, like, just RGB sensors. They don't just have red, green, blue. They actually have, like, two green pixel values or two green sensors for one pixel. Right. So these weird little things. and And that's not stuff that you think about, but the actual underlying stuff, that's the way it works. And so it has to be translated later, and eventually it will move into something that gets communicated through a profile and that's where language occurs, right? So, you know, the ideas in my head, when I communicate to you, they need a language and same thing in photography, right? When we want to move from the signals coming from the camera to something that we can see on a screen that we can print to a, you know, our printer, it needs some kind of language to describe these things. And that's really what the color profile is. So, you know, if you crack open a file, if you start looking at the math, if you look at the numbers, right? Like, you know, your RGB numbers are zero to 255, but those numbers don't mean anything. Like 255 of what? It
0: doesn't
1: doesn't stand for candelas or lumens or anything real. Um, And so these different profiles are a way of specifying, like, okay, you know, in this language, in, in the language of sRGB, this is what the numbers mean you know meanwhile in adobe rgb um, the language is different and a lot of the same colors exist in both they have you know different numbers for the same thing but then there's also cases where in the case of adobe rgb it has colors that it can express that don't exist in srgb and that would be known as gamut you know, or the the limits of how much color you can describe with a color space um, so as we compare these things, the, the, the most important difference between these really is the gamut or the range of expressiveness. So you can think of an sRGB, uh, profile as being kind of like the equivalent of you're talking to a 10 year old and the vocabulary is a little bit limited uh-huh. and Adobe RGB, you're talking to a college graduate and they're more expressive and pro photo RGB. It's like, you're talking to the press presser at a university and they have like words you don't even understand. It's a whole other <laughs> level to the thing, right? So you can communicate things um, that, that don't exist in these other places, right? So that's, that's kind of roughly the idea between these different profiles is how expressive they are, but it really boils down to essentially you know, how red is red. Like in sRGB, you can only go so far, whereas in Adobe RGB, maybe it's a little bit further. Uh, to be a little more specific, um, in Adobe RGB, um, you get a lot more cyan, green, and yellow that does not exist in SRGB. and these are printable colors. So right. if you are working in SRGB, then you're not necessarily going to be able to print the most brilliant ocean image with the green and cyan of the water because it doesn't exist in that you know profile in that language, whereas in Adobe RGB, you would be able to express it. So it just gives you more options as right. you, you know, go to these larger gamuts.
0: I like your your comparison to languages too cuz you can kind of think of about downgrading too. You can say, you know, it's not impossible for that college professor who has the high vocabulary and and the uh experience and and knowledge of a lot of words that that the 10-year-old doesn't, they can still talk to each other. They can still communicate. They just can't probably communicate exactly on like especially whatever Niche or or study the f- the professor's gone into for his whole life. It's going to be tough for that professor to to convey to that ten year old the nitty gritty details about that the choices he's been making in education and and educating himself. It takes thirty years or fifty years of experience and and seeking after the knowledge to get there. And I, I, it could be a, a pretty good comparison too. You can if you are in the photo RGB color space and have that applied that profile, and you do your editing. Then when it's time to put out an image into one that doesn't have that full profile, I like sharing on the internet, and you need to go to sRGB, you can convert, you can get it there and have it look really good still. But uh, making, doing the editing, you want to give yourself as much of that expressiveness, as much potential for that as possible in the, in the various phases. Is that a fair statement?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, to put maybe kind of a a different spin at like um, before I was a full-time photographer, I worked in medical device marketing. I okay. worked on angioplasty balloons, you know, opening up clogged arteries. And if I was talking to a doctor, we'd talk about restenosis. Okay. And, you know, when I talk to my friends, if they asked about work, I would say, yeah, the same word, instead of saying restenosis, <laughs> I would just say it was a failed procedure. Right. You know, it was a do-over. <laughs> and, and it's the same thing. So to a doctor, you know, if I walked up to them and said it's a do-over, it's not as necessarily <laughs> clear. Like they, they actually care about this right. other word, but right. to the average person on the street, what does that mean?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and it, it's the same idea. So um, you know, even though these ideas may be so complicated, they're not directly translatable into similar language, a lot of times you can get close enough. And right. that's, um, that's when you get into color space conversion. And when you're uh, digging into the bowels of Photoshop, you'll come across these like rendering intents, like perceptual and relative color metric. And if you ever see those, that's what they are. That's basically saying, how am I going to translate from your, your big fancy college vocabulary down to something I can explain to a five year old kid. Right. Right. Uh, You know, but without losing too much meaning, you know, and that's the goal is that, you know, at the end of the day, Maybe the photograph doesn't have all of the color you see on your screen, but it looks it looks close enough. it looks really good right. that's that's ultimately the goal. So try to make it as similar as possible, even though one screen is different from another is different from a printer that's that's fundamentally the problem is we all have different capabilities on different screens and, and so how do we you know make sure our images look as consistent as they can right.
0: Okay, I think that's a pretty decent base level for like discussing these color space things. And I love your advice of, you know, don't worry too much about anything behind them. Like most articles, when you go look this up, they have these graphs or these three-dimensional kind of displays about all the colors. And they try to compare the size of them and blah, blah, blah. And it just loses people because like, I don't even understand what this thing means. And uh, I think that's great advice of like, don't worry too much about the full details. The software knows how to deal with that but you do need to be able to make some decisions in your workflow. Let's start with the capture part portion of the workflow, what you do with your camera. So if, as you go look into the menus, um, most cameras offer a choice between sRGB and Adobe RGB as color spaces that can be used. Does it matter? Does it matter what you pick? Um, and and what, what scenarios might it matter?
1: So, so this is a, this is an easy one. Yeah. If you're shooting raw, which almost all photographers should, unless you have a, like if you're a sports photographer on a deadline, you might shoot JPEG. But right. for the most part, people should be shooting raw. And if you're shooting raw, it does not matter. Whatever you set here, it, it will matter in the sense that it can affect your histogram on the camera right. because the camera is going to make that histogram based on a JPEG version of the raw. But right all the data is there. At the end of the day, your raw file does not have a color space. It has sensor data. And so you can make that choice when you get home and you're working in Lightroom or Photoshop or whatever. So it really doesn't matter. If you're doing something like shooting sports or something like that where you have to shoot JPEG, just shoot sRGB. Because if that's the way you work, I'm pretty sure that what you're trying to do is send this thing really quickly to a website or shoot both right. You know, with, a, with with a raw file. Um, but it's, it confuses a lot of people, but the the quick answer is if you're shooting raw, it just doesn't matter.
0: And I was leading the witness a little on my question there, but yeah, (laughs) yes, that's right. Yeah. That's the whole point. If you shoot raw at the capture phase of the workflow, this does not matter. There's so many settings actually in your camera that don't matter because it only applies to JPEGs. It does not apply to raw, but you know, I don't want to go through all the details there, get mired down in that, but that's the point I wanted to make was at the capture phase, if you shoot RAW, this doesn't matter. If you shoot JPEG, then Greg's advice is sRGB. And I think I'd, I'd agree with that um, because it's it, that's it's molding your JPEGs. Like The reason you're shooting JPEG is probably to make it so you can share those JPEGs really, really fast. And most people who are going to receive that image, if it's in our Adobe RGB, are going to mishandle the image. They're not going to interpret that image correctly because they're going to be trying to use that image in the sRGB color space, and that's a problem. That's not good, right? Is that is that right, Greg?
1: Yeah, I mean, once you start sharing files, right, it's a whole can of worms because <laughs> you're dealing with someone who has the capability and understanding to use it, and that's that's the whole sharing on the web problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that captured pretty well. Okay,
0: perfect. All right, uh, let's move then to the next phase. After capture, now we're going to be talking about when you're actually processing your images, and I like the term working as the phase for this. And be- I like it because it will emphasize or connect with some of the language that's used in a lot of software. They often will call it like the working space, something like that, term of working. And so that that's at the point when you're starting to work on your photos, there may be times when you have to make a decision about a color space that do matter. If you're shooting raw in the capture phase, we just said that doesn't matter at all. But in when you're editing, you can, for an example... Uh, I had actually never even investigated this until I was thinking about doing this show. But Lightroom, uh, Adobe has some some good information about how Lightroom Classic deals with color space, and uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to the help article so you can read it because there's a whole lot more detail behind it than what I'm going to share here. But for example, um, they they say Lightroom Classic uses Adobe RGB most of the time in Lightroom. So most of the time meaning. Previews in the library module, in the map module, book module, slideshow module, print module, and web modules. So, all of them except the develop module, they're doing Adobe RGB in that. So, that's if you shoot raw, then it's going to use the Adobe RGB color space in all those modules as you're working in Lightroom. It also will do it in printing and draft mode, exporting PDF slideshows, if you're going to send something to blurb.com. Uh, if you're going to upload to Facebook or use most of the publishing services that might be there, if you're going to use Lightroom Classic to publish your images someplace, um, then it's going to default to Adobe RGB for, for most of that, although you can specify in some of it to use sRGB. Then they also say, in the develop module, by default, Lightroom Classic CC displays previews using the Pro Photo RGB color space. And again, this is applicable to raw images. ProPhoto RGB contains all of the colors that digital cameras can capture, making it an excellent choice for editing images. In the develop module, you can also use soft proofing panel to preview how colors look under various color-managed printing conditions. So that's kind of the basics. There's not a, a place inside of Lightroom Classic where you're saying anything about color space in Lightroom itself. But when you go from Lightroom to something else... It's going to usually. It's either going to use a ps to create a PSD format, or uh, it's going to create a TIFF file. You can kind of choose how your editing your ex what your external editor configuration is going to be, and that's a point where you do need to choose a color space. So, Greg, you just did that awesome video that shows some of the, these settings for Photoshop. But I just want to get your, your opinion, your advice. You're in Lightroom. We just saw that you don't really pick a profile yet in Lightroom as you're working on your images. But if you go outside, if you, you know, do a round trip from Lightroom to Photoshop or Lightroom to Topaz or Lightroom to something else, and you have to pick a color space, what color space do you recommend they pick and what, um yeah, what color space? Let's just
1: do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, first, I want to quickly comment, like, Adobe has shared some details about the color spaces they use internally in Lightroom. Okay. Um, but I think people should be careful not to draw any conclusions to say, oh, well, they use this, so I should use whatever elsewhere. I think you should ignore it and basically say, what is the the working space that you want to have? your files. And, and it's not even as clean as people think. Like when they say pro photo, it's actually a pro photo with a gamma of one instead of 1.8. So it's not even the pro photo that you use in Photoshop. It's this whole other thing that internally, some people call Melissa RGB and it's bottom line, don't worry about what Lightroom is doing. Don't look behind the curtain there. Just it's really a question of what do you want to work in, in Photoshop and you should open it in the space you want, because right. whatever you choose there, you're gonna get you know, up to the capabilities of that space and that's it. So if you open it originally in a small gamut space like sRGB, that's it. You've, you've made a permanent decision to remove some color from that file that's not gonna come back. So if you want to you know, eventually use the full capabilities, then you should be using a larger gamut like Adobe RGB or ProPhoto, and then you can slim it down later. So for example, if you wanna share in the world later, you could convert down to sRGB, but it doesn't work in both directions. You can't go from the small gamut back to the large.
0: Perfect. All right. So that we're talking about in Lightroom Classic. Now, and if you don't use Lightroom, there's going to be something similar in the software. Whatever you're using, you're going to find something similar. And, and so if you have a, a Lightroom equivalent where you're dealing with the files, you probably also don't have to deal with color space too much while you're in that software that's that's taking the raw data the raw file and and allowing you to make adjustments. But when you go from that pack, that software to something else, then there's a trans that, you know, something has to happen there so that that other software can understand the image that it's working with. It's not getting the full, the original raw data usually, especially if you're applying uh, Lightroom adjustments. But we're talking about then the preferences in Lightroom Classic and just since most of the listeners, that's what they use, that I'm going to relay the information. Um, you it, In Windows, it would be edit preferences in, uh, on Mac, it's Lightroom preferences, and then there's an external editing tab and you have a bunch of choices there. Um, you have choices for round tripping into Photoshop as a specific use case, and you can choose file format and color space and, and a whole bunch of other things, but the color space is what we're talking about. And so Greg, your recommendation is to set that to pro photo RGB. If you are
1: using raw files for your images, is that right? Um, pro photo is a great choice and so is Adobe RGB. Okay. Um, I would say for someone who doesn't want to like get into the weeds on stuff, and they they're they're never going to like you know go a little deeper, and they don't care about having like the last three percent of color. Like if you know if you're the kind of person who's going to maximize every little thing, then then go to ProPhoto because that will give you more capability. But if you're not that person, then I think Adobe RGB is is perhaps a better choice. And, okay. and the reason is the ProPhoto space is so massive that when you go to convert for the web or a printer or some other device down the road. When you try and shrink from that big set down to the small, that process can be a little harder to do when you're coming from such a big space. Like there are, if you if you were to map out all the colors that are described by the language of ProPhoto, some of them are not things that humans can see. And some of them are so far beyond the capabilities of any printer or monitor we'll probably ever have in our lifetime. Uh, and so, it's possible to edit things in Photoshop where things get so beyond like what you can print or show on the screen that when you try and, you know, wrangle it back in to sRGB or some other space down the road, sometimes that process doesn't go as smoothly from ProPhoto. So that's my one hesitancy. I think for me, I want to use ProPhoto. for someone who who does want to like spend a little more time learning how to do the conversions and all. I think ProPhoto is a great choice or even better are a couple of those spaces and we can go off on that tangent if, if you want to. But um, but for someone who wants the easy answer, I, I think Adobe RGB is going to give you call it like 99% of all the color that you're ever going to want without, you know, potentially opening up a few challenges for yourself.
0: Excellent. Okay. So it's, it may be the more forgiving, but still plenty of expressiveness <laughs> for, for Adobe RGB absolutely okay absolutely all right i like that i think that's that's great advice to be able to to do that so um so when you're in those settings in lightroom classic external editing um you you can make a decision if if you are a person that wants to dig into the nitty-gritty details you want to go deeper than we're going to go in this episode on color spaces then maybe pro is the way to go and you should learn how to use it make sure you're educated on how to how to make that go if if you would like to just have it kind of be a little bit more automatic
1: adobe rgb is that fair? That, that is fair. It, it, for anyone who like really wants to kind of nerd out in this stuff, take a look at something like Beta RGB or Rec 2020. Um, they're not built into the Adobe tools. And for that reason, I wouldn't recommend most people look at them, but they kind of hit that Goldilocks spot. You know, Adobe RGB doesn't have quite everything you want and ProPhoto has too much, but Beta RGB and Rec 2020 actually are pretty nice. They, they like sit just beyond... The limits of what we can show, so you don't run into the the problems, you know, managing the gamut later. But you can contain all the colors you want to use. So they're Perfect. theoretically perhaps the best choices. But um, you know, unless you really want to get in the weeds, I'd stay away from that. And and again, I think Adobe RGB is just the easy answer for most people.
0: Excellent. Um, and that advice actually helps with. I know there's at least one plugin, and maybe there's others. But one Photoshop plugin that does not work well with the ProPhoto RGB space—that's a—I a, just did a, an episode where we talked about this a little bit. But the Easy Green Screen plugin from Pixnum. Um i have talked with the developer behind the plugin a little bit about this because it, he's had a warning inside the plugin when you run it, and the, it checks the profile, and the profile is the color profile on the image is ProPhoto RGB. It has a warning that says this doesn't work as well in ProPhoto RGB. And uh, enough of a problem that he's he's going to in the next version just make it so that the plugin won't even run if your color space if your color profile is um, is Adobe or sorry ProPhoto it's gonna it won't work it's gonna make you downgrade the profile to or convert the profile to at least Adobe RGB which it works fine under so there may be uh, that may be another reason influencing your decision if you're one who uses plugins in Photoshop to do work um, they might be they might work better when you use the Adobe RGB color space instead of all the way to to Pro Photo. And I just happen to know that one is there. Okay. Uh now, so we we've got our working space. Lightroom, you really don't have to make a choice unless you're going to take an image, round trip an image from Lightroom to some other tool. Uh, then then you will need to make a choice in what we just talked about. And this probably goes for a lot of other software too. Um, now let's talk about output. And that that's the third and final phase how do how should photographers think about like output color space greg that when you're going to go to printing when you're going to go to sharing on the web how, what should, what should they do
1: yeah so um i mean generally speaking it's it's whatever you need right if you're going to output to the web the only reasonable choice today is srgb uh, unless you're in a very special scenario because quite frankly there are a lot of browsers and websites and services that just don't manage color correctly. So sRGB, you know, as sad as it is, because it's, it's an old standard and, you know, you get a new Apple laptop and it has a much better gamut or you get a new phone. It's much better gamut. Um, But sRGB, unfortunately is just the safe common denominator. So if you're outputting to the web, that really is the choice almost all the time. Um, And if you're outputting for print, then, you know, if it's your own printer, you can just print directly out of Photoshop and, and you don't even have to convert necessarily Um, If you're sending it to a lab, then, you know, I would say call the lab and ask them because some of them are going to tell you, you know, you really should use this uh, profile. But for the most part, you're probably going to send that file in the same profile. Like I I send my prints to the lab um, and I'll send them in Adobe RGB and that's that's fine. Um, It kind of depends on how much control you want over the process. If you really want to take control, then what some people do is convert it to. The profile for that output so you can get a profile that's designed for like you know so and so's metallic print and you can use that uh, to output to that and that way you know that when you send it to the lab it's defined in the language of that printer and you can just go print it without them having to do the conversion for you and you you take a little more control but but generally speaking um you don't necessarily have to think about that too much I find the place where people get hung up um, a fair bit on this is this question here a lot, which is, Hey, I'm only going to send this stuff to the web. That's my only plan. And it's going to be SRGB. Shouldn't I just edit everything in SRGB from the start?
0: Right. Right.
1: And and, um, I'm I'm not going to say that's wrong. I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, you know, if you truly are only ever going to do that, then um, you know, then, then it's very much what you see is what you get. There's no surprises at the end. Everything is going to be, you know, it's not going to get limited down the road when you go to output it for the web in that scenario. However, um, we already have a lot of monitors today that are what people would call wide gamut, and they tend to look, they're very close to the Adobe RGB gamut or to what's known as P3 on the, the newer Apple devices and some other devices. I'm not even sure what else is out there in P3, but these gamuts have a lot of colors beyond the srgb gamut and then we look at printers there are a lot of scenarios where you can print outside of srgb so even today not even considering how good things might be 10 years from now srgb has a lot of limitations so i would say you know if you're only planning to send it to you know instagram or something like that um You know things are going to get better. Like Instagram already today, you can send it an image in P3 and on their mobile app, they'll give you better looking color when it's possible. Um, So I I don't think you should preemptively handicap your working space in anticipation of the output. I think it's much better to use a a bigger space like Adobe RGB and then at the end, convert to what you need, which is going to be sRGB for the internet today um, or possibly some other specific uh, space for your printing, but most print labs are gonna say, just send it to us in Adobe RGB or whatever they're gonna tell you. Um, that said, when you call your lab, you know be a little careful who you're asking because <laughs> color is tricky and the people who know how ICC profiles work and really can answer the question, they're not the ones answering the phone lines, they're the ones <laughs> running the printers. Right. Uh so I mean, as much as the people staffing the phone lines are great people, those aren't the questions they get day in and day out. You know, they're getting a whole lot of other questions and, and they're not necessarily equipped to answer that. And they may not tell you the best answer. Sometimes the best choice is go try it a couple of different ways. Just make a small, like a five by seven inch print, something cheap, compare it a few different ways and, and go see for yourself. I think at the end of the day, one of the best pieces of advice I can give people is. Don't just take someone else's word for it. Color is really tricky. You can get a lot of bad advice. I, I certainly don't understand it all myself. I constantly am trying to test things. It's not that you've got to spend too much time on it, but you know, don't just kind of assume something is going to work out. And never try anything else. Like, go send them a couple of cheap prints. Spend ten or twenty bucks, and then you'll know. Like, oh, when I go make that, you know, big print or do this job or whatever, you'll know what works for you when you're working with that lab and, and each lab is going to be a little bit different. You know, if you're working with a, a, a mass consumer lab, things are going to be kind of basic. If you are, you know, working with Robert Park at Nevada art printers in Las Vegas, you're in a whole new league and <laughs> right. he's going to be working with you, you know, hands on. Like if you want to go crazy on this stuff, I, I couldn't recommend, you know, someone much more than Robert Park and Nevada art printers in terms of their ability to work with a photographer and create beautiful output. Um, so, so I don't, I don't necessarily have like a canned answer for you cause it's a little bit of, it depends. Right. Um, but, but I, I would say, you know, a couple things. One, like I already said, don't, don't handicap yourself by choosing, you know, a smaller working space just because you don't think you want to do anything else with your prints. So you might change your mind down the road. And, um, uh, oh, totally lost my other thought as I was saying that
0: <laughs> Maybe, number two, would it have been like, just go to SRGB for the internet?
1: um well yeah certainly uh srgb for the uh for the internet there God, i had another point it was actually important <laughs> and i'm uh, just totally blanked you know like sometimes you just lose it in the middle of these things it's like these things that are you've done them so long they're just intuitive and then
0: <laughs> and then you have to say it to someone like me and it's yeah
1: that <laughs> you got to dumb well, it down you're not facing the problem <laughs> It just like kind of just slides right out of your brain um uh, no problem but it, it, it does get i think a, a little bit kind of People overcomplicate things, but just, you know, test things and, yeah. and see what works for you. Uh, oh, I know what I was gonna say. Um like really, really important, but and it sounds obvious, but don't convert your working file. You've spent like an hour processing this layered file. Don't change that one. Right. Like <laughs> <laughs> what you need to do is save it as a copy, flatten it so that it has only one layer. And that's really important. If you have multiple layers, you're gonna get very potentially bad results, uh, especially if you have adjustment layers. And then once you flatten it, then convert it to sRGB or to whatever it needs to be. But, you know, so your working file, you open it up in your favorite working space and it never changes from that. The only only exception I can think to that would be if you're someone who wants to go work in the lab color space. So maybe you temporarily switch to lab and then you come back to that space, which is okay because lab is a a very big inclusive space. You're not going to lose a lot doing that. Um, But, you know, don't start limited and don't at the end of the process, limit yourself by converting your your original file, make, make a duplicate and work on that one. I've, I've seen people do that, uh, you know, more often than uh, I'd like to see it. It it really hurts, right? If you have spent all this time on an image and then suddenly, you know, it's like, I, I look back at my old catalog images I was shooting like 10 years ago. And I don't have the raw files and I'm right. so mad at myself. <laughs> you know, these are the kind of things that I think if you, uh, limit your color space and stuff now, you may look back 10 years down the road when you're a better photographer working with better technology and realize, oh my gosh, I wish I had that photo, you know, with all of its glory and color. Right. Right.
0: Yep. I, yeah, I get I, that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so let's, uh, well, uh, one, one final question, Greg. You just said you know flatten your image, uh, maybe change your workspace to sRGB. What about just exporting to JPEG and specifying sRGB? Is that the same thing as flattening the image and and changing the workspace and then saving it as a as a copy?
1: Yeah, if you're if you're able to you know convert to sRGB as you save it, yeah, um, then then all those things are happening in one step. Right? Um, they're not necessarily all the same things there's some little differences um, and I don't want to get in the weeds on it but like basically all my recommendations are baked into that web sharpening tool we talked about earlier which I've got a a free version of the script and there's a free panel and the free panel is about to get a whole lot better soon Um, so the best advice I can give people is just look it's free use this tool because it kind of takes care of all the steps for you to make sure it looks sharp and it's the right size and it's got the the right color space embedded and and all those little details because it's a lot more than just web sharpening that's what i call the tool but it does like 10 different things uh-huh. um, so that's the best way people do ask me a lot when they're converting to jpeg because the the other thing that goes along with your your working space people ask a lot about is the bit depth
0: mm-hmm.
1: right so your working file is going to be let's say 16-bit adobe rgb whatever you choose for the the color space it definitely should be 16 bit but an, a jpeg at the end of the day is going to be an 8 bit file right and you know people ask like is that okay and and the answer really is uh, for the most part yes there is some possibility of you know if you shot just the right you know smooth gradient sky or something maybe on a great screen you'd see the difference but it's going to look really good um, as a jpeg Uh, you just don't want to do those things in the working file because the, the way that these things become problematic is not necessarily like the moment you convert them, it still looks really good. It's when you make more changes down the road, that's when, you know, little differences become big differences and that's when problems creep in. So you want to have a nice flexible working file, but it's okay to then jam it down as a copy into that JPEG. Right.
0: Right. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, I hope this ends up being kind of a practical guide for photographers so they can make sense of this. Maybe it'll just raise more questions. But one of the things maybe we did, even if it does raise more questions, is at least you have the vocabulary now to be able to go find more answers. You know what to search for on Google. You know how to go find more depth if you want it, if you want to get d- deeper into it. Uh, but I, we'll see. We'll see what the feedback is. I, I hope it's a, a practical guide for this that People find helpful. I, I know one of the selfish reasons I, I wanted this was so the next time in the Facebook group, someone asks a question about what color space to use, I'll be able to say, Here's an episode. Go, listen, go listen to this one, and that'll answer your questions. <laughs> so, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, all right. I want to close up the show. Let's talk about doodads of the week. This is uh, just us sharing on things that that we've found helpful. Maybe it's something that we've used in the recently that that is a really nice thing to be able to recommend. And that's the case for me. I'm going to recommend the small rig multifunctional ball head clamp. Magic Arm Adapter. It's a product name that's terrible, too long, but it's 11 bucks and it's really nice to be able to have it as an option to help you attach things to like your tripod or your light stand. I have this occasionally, uh, my most common use case. It's on my tripod when I'm using it to hold up a camera. And I also have like a a wireless lav receiver that I need to connect to the camera. There's always this like battery pack and receiver thing that is dangling from your camera. And I don't want it pulling on my camera or, or potentially falling. So I need to mount it somewhere and this thing solves that problem beautifully. So it's relatively inexpensive, a way to be able to, to make it so you can mount stuff there. And and it has lots of uses. There's, there's tons of like little arms and small rig has a whole bunch of stuff, a whole lot of accessories that can go with this, that you may find really, really helpful to, uh, to mount things to your light stand or tripod. So you can go check all that stuff. Now i will have a link in the show notes to it. Greg, what do you have for do
1: that of the week? Yeah. You know, for me, like I've not been shooting as much this year for fairly obvious reasons. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of these things that I've always loved, and it's just been shining for me this year because I'm, I walk like 40 miles a week now. And a lot of times it's winter, it's dark, and, you know, I'm walking through the woods and in, in blackness is my headlamp. I've got this Petzl headlamp. It's the, uh, it's called the Arctic core 450 lumens. It's a rechargeable headlamp. It has one button. They have some other models that have multiple buttons that I find a little confusing, but it's just one button, super easy to use, lasts forever, so bright. You can use this for your photography when you're shooting like the stars or night scenes or preparing to shoot for sunrise and the sun's not up yet. It will easily let you focus on something that's like 30, maybe 40 or 50 feet away because it's so powerful. So, you know, for getting to and from the scene and then helping to focus in low light conditions... I love this headlamp uh, and it's very good. like 69 bucks. Um, and you know, I, I have so many Petzl okay, headlamps, so Greg, but I probably buy a few more of these this particular model because it's just so great. Uh,
0: they can get it Artific. free right now, right? How, how do they get it? Yeah,
1: I've got a, a free script and I've got a, a panel that um, if you're using the newest version of Photoshop, you can use both. Um, and the, the way to find that easily is just sign up for my newsletter off my website. So I'm com slash newsletter and um you'll be the first to know when i've got the the new version coming so the the panel i have right now it's going to get a lot better in about a month or so so you'll uh, you'll hear about it in the newsletter
0: yep and i've been able to be a small small portion of <laughs> helping greg work on this uh i've been using it for a while and it's great i, I love it it's it, it simplifies the the web sharpening process at the end so that you get your images to look the very best for sharing out on the internet and it's it's fabulous so go sign up for his new le- newsletter so you can you can know. Okay. All right, we're going to close up here. Remind you dot pho- masterphotographypodcast.com for the show notes. So some of the links we talked about and if you can't remember everything, then um a lot of what we've talked about will be in the show notes so you can just go and, and read through that if you want to. Uh, Facebook group, Master Photography Podcast. You can just go search for that on Facebook. We do ask you to name a host on the show in order to join. We don't put it in the show notes or say it anywhere else but on the podcast because we only want listeners in the Facebook group. So if you don't name a host, you won't be in. And so you can name either Jeff or... Uh, Greg from this episode and have that work great I'll know you're a listener because you named one of us and if you don't answer the question you don't get in so it's the only way to to know how to get in there is by listening to the show you can find my work over at jsharmonphotos.com or my other podcast is phototacopodcast.com and um and then I have my Instagram Twitter and
1: Facebook information all in the show notes too Greg where can people find you uh, easiest way to find me is on gregbendsphotography.com. And if you just scroll straight down to the bottom, I've got links for all my social and all the other places you can find me online.
0: Excellent. And everyone should check out Lumensia for luminosity masking. And Greg has even a, a really good master course in how to use the tool and and what luminosity masking even is and how to, how to make it improve your images that you should absolutely go and check out. So, so uh, I highly recommend it. I've been using Lomenzia for a long time now. It's great. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Greg, for joining me and we'll see you all again in another seven days. Thanks, Jeff.